Hey everyone, this is Derek Stone. This is Conrad Geringer. And you're listening to the Working Translate Podcast. Today, we're just going to discuss some results from this past weekend. Ironman Cozumel took place and it was a very speedy day. Why we think certain times are getting faster and just what's happening across the board. Yeah, it's crazy. The times that the top pros and the top age groupers are throwing down you know, over the last five years, specifically probably the last four years, it's somewhat absurd. There are many factors involved. Pessimists often point to doping. I have no idea if the top athletes are doping. I'm, sur- I'm sure some of them are. I'd like to think that most of them aren't. I do think that it's possible to go very fast with without doping. Some people are pointing to the, the shoes, the carbon sold super shoes, which definitely a factor. People are pointing to... Uh, bikes and they're getting more aerodynamic athletes are paying more attention to optimizing position i think that definitely has something to do with it i was doing very brief research to try to understand exactly how crazy the crop of athletes are just they're so much faster than prior generations even if you just look at kona so kona obviously it's it's one race but it's something that's easy to contemplate if you go back to 2016, Jan went 806. And that that's pretty fast because up until that point, actually, I guess Craig Alexander, he went 803, 56 in 2011. But apart from that, there wasn't an athlete who broke 810. In 2016, Jan basically going as fast as the fastest athlete ever at Kona. And then in 2017, you had Patrick Lang break his record. He went 801 and then Lionel Sanders went 804. So both of them broke the old record. And David McNamee, he went 807. You had three athletes basically tie or break the world record. And, and that year, the conditions were very good though, right? Yeah, yeah. So no, there, I think there was two years in a row. The conditions were phenomenal. The wind was yeah. low and the heat, it was not very warm. So it gave them the opportunity to go really fast. So that was when Patrick Lang broke the course record. He went 801.40. And then, so 2016, Jan won 806. And then 2017, Patrick Lang broke the course record, went 801.40. The next year, Patrick Lang broke eight hours, went 7.52. Bart Arnott, he went 7.56. So he broke eight hours. And David McNamee, he went 801.09. So you had the top three athletes break the course record again. And then last Kona, Jan won. And the conditions were not good. It was a tough year. He obliterated the course record, went 751. Tim O'Donnell got second. He broke eight hours, went 759. And Sebastian Keenley went 802. So when you compare it to like the pre-2016 era, only one person ever went under 810 up to that point. And that's Craig Alexander. Everyone else went 812 or slower. And, and most years, I mean, if you add up the average win time since 2000, I mean, it's, it's closer to 820 than, than it is to 810. So mm-hmm. it's not a trivial difference. We're talking about like 30 minute improvement. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine like nutrition is a big piece that too, like where people tend to find out there, there's just more knowledge and more science behind how much you can take. And that's been a big factor as well. Obviously, like you mentioned, the shoes. Kona is a good course to compare because it is consistent year over year, or at least for the most mm-hmm. part. But then you walk into these situations where records are being broken. It might have a, a swim that's aided or, you know, cor- like a bike course that's short. And I think Texas a couple years ago, they dubbed Matt Hansen as having, having like a bike, bike split record, but it was like two miles short. 
it's interesting that like um i guess they haven't really announced that christian blumenfeld has set the, the world record for the ironman distance but yeah. i also think there needs to be standards because when you look at even like track and field for example if you're running the 100 or the 200 the record doesn't count if this the wind speed is is aided like two meters per second and and the same goes for sprints at, at, at altitude as well so if you're at a certain elevation it's not a, a world record attempt if it's at a certain altitude because there, there's an advantage for sprinters. Right. Obviously it's the fastest known time, but I don't know if you can dub it as a world record. Like, what do you think? I mean, I don't think it matters because uh, the Ironman, any Ironman record is going to be bullcrap because it, it's just so variable. Mm-hmm. It, you know, on the track, there are variables that will slow one down tremendously. Obviously weather and wind can slow somebody down. Temperature can slow somebody down, but for Ironman, you could create these scenarios where conditions are so ideal and so unique. And of course, it's so much easier to break a world record on a flat course or like what Jan did a couple of months ago that they created the ideal course. In every case, every Ironman world record in the last 20 years should have an asterisk. Like you just mentioned, Matt Hansen at Texas. I mean, that bike course was like two or three miles short mm-hmm. and the run course was short. So Certainly that should not count. And then you have current aided swims. We should probably talk about the results. Yeah. yeah. What kind of incited this, this podcast. Christian Blumenfeld overall time of seven hours, 21 minutes and 12 seconds, which is the fastest time anyone's ever covered the distance. Um, to break it down, his swim was 39 minutes and 41 seconds. Mike was 402 in 40 seconds. And his run was a two hour, 35 minute and 24 second marathon. Even when you look at the bike and run splits, those are incredibly fast. But when you're swimming in Cozumel, it is an, an ocean swim, but there is a current. Salt water obviously helps as well. Either way, like an outstanding performance, no matter which way you look at it. He won by like 15 minutes, I 15 think. 15 minutes. I, I still think it was one of the greatest Ironman performances of all time, even though you know we're going to talk about the swim. And he, obviously, he can't help it. He swam 39 minutes. And I think one can safely say that the swim had to be at least eight minutes fast compared to a, call it like a typical lake swim. He did bike 402, 40 and Cozumel, it's pretty flat. I'm not sure exactly how the conditions influenced speed. I do know a few age groupers and they flew. I mean, they went way faster than they typically do. I do think conditions were ideal. The run 235, Two years ago, we would look at that and be like, what the heck? Like, like yeah. you, you would look possible. at that and think it's not even possible, right? Right. You're looking at what people are posting. It was rainy. So it probably cooled down the course quite a bit. I know, yeah, it's incredibly flat. I think you go around the island twice or something like that. So it's, it is flat. You're close to sea level, which that helps with, with your oxygen as well. Mm-hmm. But um, the weather was ideal too. So generally, it's a it's a warmer race, but not super hot because it's in the fall. But they did have ideal conditions. One hundred percent outstanding performance, considering the guy was training for the Olympics too this year. You know, you're looking at the Olympic gold medalist stepping up to the Ironman distance, completely smashing the field. I mean, he did obliterate the field. So obviously, the Norwegians are onto something in their with their training methods. It just so happens that the two sort of superstars in triathlon right now are from Norway and train together. It's interesting when you think about that. It's this idea, surround yourself with people who push you. I mean, is I'm sure that they're contributing to one another's success. They do a lot of, lot of volume and their training load is really high. So they're putting in the work. And obviously, genetically, I think that they're 
built to perform incredibly well at long course racing, partially because of their volume and their big days. But I mean, also just inherently, I think <laughs> they have the genetics obviously to do very well. So you can't really contribute at all to training. However, th their training is, is onto something. I know that they do some fairly unique things. They spend a lot. I rarely do they train well above threshold. They spend a lot of time right around threshold and, and certainly a lot of time, a lot slower than threshold. One thing I know is that hearing how fast Gustav Eden, for example, goes on the, on the number of Watts he's putting out on the bike, they're, they're very efficient and they're, I think they're tactically savvy and they're tactically smart and they, um, they pay attention to the details. I think about the Olympics and the special tri suits that they had, yep. the see-through <laughs> white tri suits that they got a lot of flack for, but I mean, it worked. Them cool. worked for the bike. I mean, their bike positions are great. What do you think about these runs that we're seeing? The runs are getting faster. And yes, I think partially due to the super shoes that we're seeing come out. So we have these carbon plated shoes with super foam that allows people to delay the onset of fatigue later in the stages of the race. But also you're seeing these short course guys come up and step up to the marathon and they have the speed for it. They're just fit and they're training differently because they objectively were training for the Olympics and then stepping up for to a longer race. So they're built for the speed and they're obviously already doing volume. So they're already prepared for the, the distance, but they're just moving at a, at a faster pace. And, and it's interesting to contemplate, I mean, what does it mean to train for an Ironman optimally versus train for an Olympic distance race? Does an Ironman require years of Ironman specific training? And at the end of the day, I think that the kind of volume that Gustav and, and Christian were putting in, I mean, it's the same volume that the top Ironman athletes are, are doing. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's, it's not like you have to train much differently for an Ironman compared to a, an Olympic distance race. Obviously you need to build efficiency at race pace and mm -hmm. you need to hone tactics for an Ironman versus an Olympic distance race, but it's still beneficial to, to train at high intensities when you're training for an Ironman. And the question is how long would it take these athletes to really sort of hone efficiency at, they're probably putting out 75 to 80% of their FTP on the bike and running uh, probably 85% of their threshold for the run. You want to get good and, and you want to get very comfortable at those paces and spend a lot of time there. But you know, it's not like, I don't think you need years <laughs> building that. And it's sort of oftentimes the default pace in, in a lot of their training rides and runs also likely. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, like the Norwegians, I think this is, this probably holds true for a lot of different single sport athletes as well. They put in a lot of volume. You look at the track and field guys, the brothers, um, mm -hmm. they train a lot. You know, maybe, maybe there's just something in the water up there too that they, right. you know, right. they, they start that the whole country is producing a lot of fantastic athletes. They must have grew up cross country skiing or something that that also boosted their their endurance capabilities as well. But yeah, you look at the Olympics this year and and guys are stepping it up. I think it's it's changing the way people look at things, and that's why you're seeing more and more people dip under the eight hour mark. I mean, not, not this race specifically, but you are seeing some tighter races or tighter, tighter groupings. And um, part of that is probably because people are training together, you know, more frequently, like Lionel yeah. and, and, and uh, Sam Long will swim together occasionally and things like that. But it's just going to continue pushing the throttle. That, that's a good point. It's almost like the Roger Bannister effect, where as soon as he went under four hours, 
all of a sudden a handful of other guys <laughs> went under, went under four, sorry, four minutes when he yeah, broke yeah. the four minute mile <laughs> within, you know, six months, you had a handful of other guys break the four minute mile because it's almost like he gave them permission to do exactly. So. And it was interesting too, when that was happening, they physically thought it was impossible. You would right. actually die if you went that fast for four minutes, which obviously is not the case. But yeah, once um, once he broke it, then I think someone broke it the, the next day, if I'm not mistaken. So it was it was pretty quickly. There's the psychology of it. There's the, I think the super shoes. It, it's tough to discount those. Mm-hmm. And you know, if we think about 10 seconds per mile, you know, I found with you know, athletes I work with and self experimentation also five to 10 seconds per mile is not unreasonable and unreasonable expectation improving five to 10 seconds per mile. When you, when you throw on the carbon sold super shoes, if you break that down, a marathon kind of shakes out, uh, to what four, four or five minutes. That's kind of what we're seeing. We're seeing a larger number of athletes run kind of two thirty-five or even upper two thirties. Whereas top athletes used to be, I mean, honestly, yeah, I was going to say like five years ago, six years ago, 250 was a scream in time. Mm-hmm. And then you had athletes at very fast races, maybe run 245, but sub 240 was truly unheard of. And within the last two weeks, we've had what, three athletes, well, I'm trying to think, Blumenfeld, Gustav Eden and Lionel, they all broke 240. Mm-hmm. And those courses were legit. So like the, the, run courses were short. Or right. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're, they're courses that have, to the best of my knowledge, they've been pretty similar. It would be interesting to sort of aggregate a bunch of power data from the pros and say the average intensity factor and the average uh, power that say the top five athletes at each race put out. Cause I, I do think that athletes are putting out more power nowadays. Yes. It, aerodynamics are a thing, but even I read an article about Cody Beals. Cody Beals, I believe you wrote it actually. So Cody Beals is a pro from Canada and he was talking about uh, sort of the shift in uh, his own power that that he kind of has to put out to keep up with the front pack now. Mm-hmm. I think it was sort of over the last three years, I think he had to increase his, his power by about 10 watts. I forget the ex- exactly what the starting point was and, and kind of what he had to put out, for example, at Chattanooga a few weeks ago, well, I guess late September, like maybe he had to go from like 270 to, to 285 watts. But the general idea is there are professionals talking about how the bike is just way more competitive. It's tougher for the Uber cyclist to, to catch up now because everybody's a good cyclist. It seems like the Uber cyclists, they've also become good swimmers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's uh, definitely some crossover there. You even see this in the age group field too. I, I even think like when you and I race each other that in my head, I, I, I'm doing workouts to prepare, you know, you're, you're obviously a step ahead of me on the bike, but I'm doing workouts to kind of make up for that. And, and I know I need to be at a certain level to be able to, to compete, you know, that's, it's happening across the board with age group and pro athletes and it's pushing everyone to get faster. It's about raising the bar, setting the standard, and then responding to it. Mm-hmm. Who's that coach? The Newbury, the high school, the top high school cross country team. I can't think of his name right now, but he had a pretty controversial quote and he got a lot of, not necessarily heat for it, but he got a lot of attention. He did get a lot of heat for it actually, but he's, he said a 420 mile for a high school boy isn't fast. It's just not that fast. Or he said something to that effect. You know, obviously a lot of coaches and athletes at that level were 
kind of offended by it, I think. I mean, it's pretty fast, but it, everything is relative, right? Right, right. <laughs> and he said that, and he continues to say it, and they produce an insane... I mean, th- their team right now is probably the best high school cross-country team in history because the standard is just a little bit higher. All of the athletes, they raise and they meet the standard on the, the boys' and the girls' side on that team. The top five athletes across the line, they, they take the average time. It was one of the iconic races and they destroyed the old record by a lot. I think it was like 20 seconds or something. That's um, crazy. They, they averaged sub 15 and this wow. is high school, a high school boys cross country team. And that's on grass and not a track yeah, too. Yeah. Which... So that was, that was three miles. When I was in college and it's, when you like think about the, the point of the 420 mile and we were at the Vanderbilt track a few years ago and I remember watching the high school boys run and there was the whole field was like 405 and under. So there is some validity to the 420 isn't that fast anymore. You know, it is all relative, you know, because those 420 guys can still go to college and, and get faster, but people are just getting faster. Like when I was in college, my buddy ran a 14.25 cadence at the school record. And this year, two guys went under 14 minutes at a meet together. And so it's just wild. And every sport, every single sport, people are just getting faster. It's kind of exciting, but a lot of people are also concerned, you know, about that. So, so we think about the shoes and the, the concept that the old records are sort of meaningless now. A lot of people are sort of bitter about that. But I also think it's, it's almost... It can be a good thing because it, it, people are maybe more engaged with the sport now because records are falling and hundred percent it's because of the shoes. It's because mm-hmm. of the, the carbon shoes and the carbon spikes, yep. but it's kind of exciting to watch, <laughs> to watch this overall. It's good. You, you get a lot of the, uh, maybe the old school or the, the athletes right now say maybe the, the sort of the baby boomer generation or athletes who are part of the run boom and, or who competed in the, the 90s and early 2000s, so, so younger, whatever it is, Generation X. And I think our generation also, we're kind of looking at all these records being broken and we're like, wow, well, you know, if we had shoes in, in high school or college, like, well, what, what could we have run? Mm-hmm. Um, like, are these athletes actually better? And you know, we can critique it or be bitter that we didn't have access to this technology, but I think it's good for the sport. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fine. Everything, we're going a little bit faster because of technology. And that's the case in pretty much all sports, right? Yeah. One, one thing that's also interesting, Boston qualifying list came out and everyone that submitted the application was accepted. Generally, you had to be five minutes roughly under the, the qualification time. So if it's a three-hour marathon, you had to run 255. Everyone got in this year for next year, which that's been the first time that's happened in a very long time. What was the time? So what was like the slowest time that would have gotten in? It's relative to the age group field too, or like whatever age group it is. And because the times are different for each gender and age group, but mm-hmm. everyone that submitted got in. But I also wonder if that was due to the field size being broken up. And then also people didn't race a marathon or didn't have the opportunity as much over the last year and a half too. So there could have been fewer entries as well. It'd be interesting to see that data. I looked it up. So it was... Newbury Park and Sean Brosnan is their coach. Okay. It's kind of funny. Just look it up. 420 is not fast for a high school mile. It's just not fast. <laughs> Man, I ran 439 in high school, so I was pretty slow. 
You improved a lot in college, though. I did. Um, th- does it show the the average time of, of the their top five yeah. of the cross country meet? And you said it was three miles and not five k. Right. I didn't so, look that one up, but it was definitely sub fifteen. Gotcha. It's still fast though. So even yes. if it was a five k figure, roughly thirty seconds. So right. That'd, that'd be very quick. Very interesting developments in in cross country or and. I mean, really endurance sports in general. And mm-hmm. like you briefly mentioned, I think one thing is nutrition, especially for, for long course racing. I think that that has kind of transformed everything. The saying is nutrition is the fourth discipline in a long course. So 70.3 and Ironman. And that's, that's definitely the case. However, 100% athletes definitely pay more attention to it now. And I'm talking about in race nutrition, mm-hmm. uh, Gustav Eden, for example, I know that he consumes over 500 calories per hour on the bike in an Ironman. I'm curious to see what Christian Blumenfeld consumes. And you just have that. It's clear that athletes are consuming more calories per hour in long course races than they previously have. And part of that is because the products are just better. You have sports drinks with both glucose and fructose in them. So you can simply absorb more carbohydrates. You can simply absorb more calories without experiencing a gut bomb. And I think, I also think a lot of athletes are coached now. So, you know, they have access to people who have knowledge and (laughs) have worked with hundreds of other athletes trying to do what they're doing. And so I think access to knowledge has improved. We just know what what to do to maximize performance. And you know, that's definitely one thing that even I think we've, we've probably seen evolve since we started coaching. It used to be not that many products had multiple carbohydrate types. Yep. Um, I mean, even Gatorade Endurance up until like three years ago was did not have enough sodium <laughs> and it did not have, uh, I'm not sure it had glucose or sucrose, which would be a little bit of fructose and glucose, but I think it was just fructose. And that was an issue for a lot of athletes. But nowadays, most people can stomach Gatorade endurance. I'm not sure I actually work with anybody right now who actually, I mean, people don't like it. So it is harsh. Yeah. They'll get some tailwind or goo or something, but I I don't know of any athletes who actively can't absorb it. If that makes sense. Right. Right. Yeah. Gatorade endurance is in my opinion, not the best sports drink for long course. Uh, I definitely consume it a lot on the course just because it's available. But, you know, it has a lot of dyes in it. It has yep. extra stuff that eh, uh, there isn't a, it probably isn't terrible for you, but I don't think it's good for you. What do you like? What, what do you consume during, during yeah, the long course? I, li- I like Tailwind and Gurocktane yep. quite a bit. Those two, a little bit lighter tasting. <laughs> and there's no dyes. It, it's just it's a powder mix, which mm-hmm. and it's just not as harsh as Gatorade. So I'll start with that. And then when I run out, then I grab the Gatorade Endurance. Yeah. The goo. Yeah. I like Tailwind in Indiana. I consumed probably 1500 calories of that on the bike in addition to Gatorade Endurance, but goo Roctane, it's just, it just, it tastes really good mm-hmm. in training. I like, I like that. It's probably yeah. the most delicious <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. It's also the most expensive. It is. So yeah. I tend to, I know you get a good discount on it. It's just pretty expensive. Yeah. Um, but definitely good. It's good stuff to the extreme. I remember reading something about Dave Scott back in the day, late eighties, early nineties, before we knew how to fuel for Ironmans. And I mean, it's just kind of funny listening to how they, they fueled 
basically like water. And I know he, he, uh, consumed a lot of figs, dried figs in, in the early, early years. And when I was looking up the, the prior sort of the winning times for Ironman, it's kind of funny how slow everybody was mm-hmm. back in the eighties. And then you can kind of see that people just kind of figured it out in the early eighties. You had Scott Tinley in 1982, he went 919, and then Dave Scott kind of busted onto the scene. He went 908, 905, 854. So every year, you know, they were taking off some more time. And then it's almost like Dave Scott had to step it up because Mark Allen arrived. Yep. And then there was a drop. So 1986, Dave Scott went 828 at Kona, then 834. Scott Molina went 831 and 88. Mark, then Mark Allen finally won. This was when I think we might be seeing a similar thing now to what happened back then. So in 1989, that's when the Iron War happened. And Mark Allen went 809. Dave Scott went 810. The fastest time before that was was right around 830. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a, like a 20-minute drop. That's pretty crazy. Third place that year was Greg Welch. He went 832. It was an outlying year. And you have Dave Scott and Mark Allen duking it out. You can compare that to Gustav Eden and Christian Blumenfeld training together. Even at the you know more amateur level, you have even within working triathlete. I mean, we we have a great group of athletes who often. I mean, we have little seed groups throughout the country, but in, in Nashville, obviously, that's where most of our group workouts occur, and the athletes definitely push each other because there we have a lot of athletes at various levels of ability and. They inspire one another and certain athletes, especially, you know, if a new athlete joins, maybe they're slow at first and eight months later, they're top and they're, they're inspiring athletes who, you know, have been at the sport even longer to be more consistent. They can see what's possible Mm -hmm. and they raise their own bars. So yeah, Yeah, people, people like success. So we've fostered this community of people that, enjoy thriving on the success of one another, but also that the competition as well. And it's, it's friendly competition. You know, obviously there's, there's battles that people want to win, but it has encouraged us all to work harder and work smarter, train harder and train smarter. One last thing that I think would be worth talking about was, is the the bike cycling equipment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. And, and so, so obviously that's one huge factor for the faster times that we're seeing. You can see that if you hop on YouTube and just, for example, I mean, just look at the iron war that I'm just talking about. <laughs> the bikes Mark Allen. then versus now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The bikes then versus now, they weren't even wearing tight cycling jerseys. I'm pretty sure that Mark Allen and Dave Scott were wearing just tank like... tops <laughs> yeah. that basically were acting as parachutes on the bike. And, you know, they're sitting up and it's just, I would love to know what kind of power they put out that day because they biked pretty fast. Even the Iron War year, 1989, was kind of an outlying year. Throughout the the 90s, it's almost like there was a drop-off again. Like 830, mm-hmm. 830s won it a couple times. And when Tim DeBoom won it in 2002, so he was the last American to win it, he went 829.56. That's not to quote Brosnan, Sean Brosnan, but that's that's just not that fast. <laughs> <laughs> No, because we have age groupers going that fast now. Um, right. Yeah. Like literally this, this past weekend. He went 823, you know? And, yeah. And a I great think performance. There's, there's a bunch of guys that went right around the same time in Cozumel as well, you know? And right. It's 
fascinating. The bikes obviously are slippery. They're, they're, they're definitely slippery in the wind, but also you have integrated hydration, which makes a difference, makes things simpler. So you're not screwing around trying to grab hydration and store it on your bike. You can just dump it in if, if the bike does have like some type of bladder in the frame. And even just hiding flat kits and, and things like that, you know, they have gotten more efficient on storage solutions. I know a lot of athletes really point to Sebastian Keenley as one athlete who really brought the, say, the, the time trial, the cycling, pure time, pure cycling time trial uh, technology to triathlon. He really paid very close attention to the little things. So when he started in what, probably the early 2010s, I know he was around before that, but I know in 2014, he won at Kona, 2013, he got third. And before that he was still around, but he was, he came on as an Uber cyclist. So he could just ride like a madman. And he was very clearly into sort of optimizing his cycling setup it paid off because he was obviously able to win Kona in 2014. And I think part of that was his cycling equipment was just better. He made good choices there. He was aerodynamic, he paid attention to wheels, the tubes he was running, uh, his cycling position, his helmet. He went to the wind tunnel. He paid attention to the little things and the little things together. Well, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And he definitely inspired. And I've heard other professionals really point to Keenley as an inspiration and somebody who influenced them and, and caused them to pay more attention to their cycling setup. And at this point, everybody has a good, <laughs> a good setup and everybody pays attention. It counts. People are going faster because of it. Yeah. Even at Nice in 2019 with the 70.3 world championships, his bike partner was Scott bikes. And I think they stripped the paint because they knew it'd save X amount of time climbing uh, the mountain, you know, and um, obviously right. he didn't win. What was he third that year? Yeah, he had a good race. Yeah, I think so. I think so he was third. It, you know, it paid off. You know, like who knows if that made much of a difference or not. But I'm sure, I'm sure they did the calculations and they were aware that that was needed to help support a better bike split. I mean, it definitely helped. I mean, he he had a great run that that year also. I believe. I mean, he had what was that 2019? So mm-hmm. 2019, he kind of broke through again because I think he was dealing with injuries and then. He, uh, he got his run together and he crushed it. Now he's been somewhat struggling since then with injuries, but although he did have a good performance at the last Kona, right? Did he get, I think he got third. Yeah, he went, I think he went like 801. He was behind T.O. in okay, the last yeah, Kona. Yeah. It was Jan, Tim O'Donnell, and then Keenley. It's kind of funny that Keenley announced his <laughs> retirement in 2023, kind of early. I Leaving think. it out there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the end of, of an era because he's... We've had Jan and Keenley. They've sort of been big characters in long course after the Chris McCormick, Craig Alexander era. And you could probably throw Pete Jacobs in there. But now we have this new era coming. Exactly. It's going to be even more exciting, I think, next year. You know, it'll be interesting to see if they all race in St. George, too, because that will be a pretty tactical race as well. Mm -hmm. And... And then they'll probably race again in October. So we, we might get two opportunities to see some pretty exciting racing. Did I see a headline, Jan and Eden are not going to race each other at the World Championships? I, I saw something like that, but someone also debunked it right away too. So I don't, I don't, oh, know, okay. what, I don't know what's 
if it's true or not. So I Got think so one was claiming they weren't going to go to St. George and the other one was claiming they weren't going to go to Kona, which wouldn't make sense. I would imagine we're going to see a lot of the top athletes hit up both of them. Right. Exactly. Man, if I was Jan, I would take one crack at it. And <laughs> if you take down Eden or Bloom, it would be okay to retire Yeah, <laughs> just to go out on top because I mean, he's 40 now and that's not old. Certainly. I mean, you see, you can, athletes can continue to perform very well after that. But when we talk about tip, 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 top, top, where one, one hundredth of a percent matters, there's something to be said, I think for going on top and not, <laughs> you don't really want to fade away slowly. Yeah, You know, legacy, legacy is important, but I don't know, people would still remember his his dominating performances at Kona and 70.3s and the other races too, actually. Yeah. Chall- Challenge Miami, et cetera. I'm pretty sure he was an Olympic champ as well. He was, but he's like Tom Brady. Yeah. He's just, <laughs> honestly, they kind of look alike. They do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a really funny observation. Uh, I could see him sticking around for a few more years and I wouldn't have fault him for that either. Certainly. Um, Got to make some money before you you retire, but exactly. he's, he's probably fine. Well, we'll stay tuned until next year. Well, I mean, we'll be on obviously, but it'll be really exciting to watch them perform at the world championship events yep. and, and beyond. Good podcast. We will track and see what more just crazy times pros and age groupers alike throw down. And certainly if you want to know more about how you can go faster, definitely drop Derek or me a line. You can reach me at Derek at workingtriathlete.com. You can reach me at Conrad at workingtriathlete.com. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.